Support for Defiance comes from Kraken, consistently rated the best and most secure Bitcoin exchange. Kraken puts the power in your hands to buy, sell and trade Bitcoin. With 24-7, 365 world-class customer support, you can trust Kraken to support you, whoever you are, wherever you are. Available at kraken.com or via the mobile app, which is on the Apple or Android app stores. Just search for Kraken Pro, which is K-R-A-K-E-N-P-R-O. Support also comes from BlockFi. With bank interest rates so low at the moment, there needs to be a new way of doing things, and BlockFi allows just that. With a BlockFi interest account, you can earn up to 8.6% APY on cryptocurrency deposits with interest paid monthly into your account. BlockFi has a loan account which allows you to borrow money at rates as low as 4.5%, so you can keep control of your Bitcoin whilst freeing up some cash. Not only that, BlockFi has a credit card coming out which allows you to earn up to 1.5% back in Bitcoin on every purchase. Accounts are quick to set up, flexible and secure. BlockFi really is the future of finance. To find out more, head to BlockFi.com, which is B-L-O-C-K-F-I.com. Britney Spears was the pop darling of the late 1990s. She's still one of the best-selling musicians of all time and had a meteoric rise to fame. But like so many other young stars, that fame came at a cost. A family death, divorce and a custody battle saw her spiral into depression. With the paparazzi on her tail 24-7 and documenting her escape into drink and drugs, the world's media became the judge and jury and the courts gave custody of her children to Britney's ex-husband. The breakdown led to her being placed under a conservatorship where her father and his team of financial advisors took control of her health and her wealth. In this episode, we look at the corruption in the conservatorship system in California and how it allows lawyers, advisors and the conservators themselves to make millions off those they're meant to be protecting. I'm Tom Pattinson and this is episode three of Everyone Loves Britney for Defiance. Hi there. Um, I cannot disclose who I am. Um, I used to be a paralegal for an attorney that worked um, with Britney's conservatorship. I am no longer with them. Um, and what is happening is disturbing, to say the least. It was this message left on the answer phone of the Britney's Graham podcasters at the start of 2019 that first alerted the world that Britney Spears was still being held under a conservatorship by her father. After her very public breakdown at the end of 2007 and her hospitalisation at the start of 2008, it was known that Britney was put under a temporary conservatorship. Well, it was assumed it was temporary. But in October 2008, that conservatorship was made permanent, where it remains to this day. Britney's fans were astounded that this woman who'd spent the last decade touring the world, releasing best-selling albums and performing nightly in Las Vegas, had been under a conservatorship controlled by her father this whole time. You know, when I heard that voicemail, everything kind of clicked for me, that all these suspicions that we as fans had over the years, all these... Um, you know, bizarre incidents we heard about, we could finally ascribe them to the conservatorship. And the voicemail alleged all sorts of things like she was being held against her will in the mental health facility since January 
2019, uh, that her dad had canceled domination because she basically was trying to kind of rebel against the conservatorship and do things she wasn't supposed to do. This is Kevin Wu and Megan Radford of the Free Britney movement. That voicemail said that Britney was in a conservatorship run by her father and had been for 11 years. In it, it alleged that she was sent to a mental health facility against her will and that a scheduled tour was cancelled after Britney tried to rebel against this conservatorship. Rebelling in this case was not taking her meds on time and being caught driving to Starbucks alone. And it's never really, really been confirmed whether or not his claims were true. Um, But I think the, in a broader sense, um, the claim was that this conservatorship um, was too restrictive. And that was the turning point that, you know, hundreds of thousands of fans all over the world sort of woke up to that fact. So, so the free Britney movement in its current form started then April, 2019. The thought of a global megastar like Britney Spears, not being able to make decisions herself about her finances, her health, her social interactions and her creative freedoms is astounding. So much so that it's genuinely hard to believe. A conservatorship is when an adult is deemed incapable of looking after themselves or their financial affairs. In Britney's case, both. And therefore they're given a conservator who's responsible for both her personal well-being and her financial well-being. The Free Britney movement started when it became apparent, in thanks to that voicemail, that Britney was not only still under a conservatorship, but she was not under it willingly. The Free Britney movement aims to end the conservatorship. Um, We are claiming that conservatorship is not appropriate. It was never appropriate for Britney Spears. And we have already seen proof of that. We've seen her perform on stage. You know, she uh, is capable of taking care of herself. Um, Whether or not she needs, you know, support is a separate question. We do advocate, you know, her having, you know, as many qualified assistants um, to help her as she needs. But it does not mean that, you know, what she went through justifies removing all her civil rights. How did no one know she was under this conservatorship? According to Kevin, some fans did have their suspicions. There were clues over the years that um, sort of raised red flags. Um, So like, in 2016, you know, Britney gave an interview in front of a live audience um, on the Jonathan Ross show where she talks about her conservatorship. She had never publicly talked about her conservatorship up to that point. Um, and I think now we're realizing that probably because her team didn't allow her to do that. And so she talked about her conservatorship, about how because of it, she wasn't really given any creative control over the albums she put out before Glory, which she was promoting at the time. And those comments were actually edited out of the final broadcast. Um, And then during um, the, you know, summer of 2018, um, that's when she went on a world tour. Um, She took the Peace of Me residency abroad and uh, there were several incidents at um, fan meet and greets where fans like reported that she was um, 
act behaving bizarrely. And so um, I think now we're thinking maybe she was rebelling against, that was her only way of rebelling against being forced to do meet and greets that she never really agreed to. So was she really being held against her will? Britney was first put under a conservatorship in 2008, aged just 26, with paperwork citing that she was suffering from a dementia-related illness. I asked probate attorney Lisa McCarley, what are conservatorships? I learned the craft of conservatorship, which are protective proceedings, or supposed to be protective proceedings for incapacitated adults. How common is it? I mean, I, I don't know whether this is a, a, a very, very rare thing. The state of California has never, never kept any type of organized uh, statistics. But I would say that, um, I should say, it is becoming more common, more um, as attorneys have discovered it to be a very lucrative area of law. So it used to be back in the, um, let's say, 1999 through 2009. So say for about 10 years when I first started practicing, very few people, in fact, I think I was maybe the only person that walked around and said, I want to do conservatorships because I want to help people. I want to not see grandma being abused. I want to see, you know, it's like, and now of course it's exploded into this major industry, but how many people are conserved? I, I mean, I would say hundreds of thousands, but there is actually literally no uh, body, no agency responsible for gathering that information and being able to tell us. And that is part of the problem. How um, the conservatorship monitors or controls how much of someone's life? And is that it open to interpretation? Is there a, a, a divided? The court has a mandate to do what's called the least restrictive alternatives and to provide the conservatee with as many of the decisions so that he or she retains technically the right to vote, the right to get married, the right to supposed to be higher attorneys, the right to um, as make medical decisions even. So what we are supposed to be doing is creating a platform where we only intervene or only have judicial oversight of what is absolutely mandatory or critical, but leave as much of the decision-making to the um, conservative, let's say Brittany in this case, as possible to make her as uh, independent. I mean, that's part of the mandate. In um, California, there's actually been new law provided that you cannot, as a conservator, control mail or social contacts without a special court order, which, again, is great because what I've seen in terms of my research on the Britney Spears case is that not only were, were these rules violated, but they were violated in ways that I find offensive and unconscionable. Yeah. Free Britney movement and probate lawyers like Lisa claim there was a litany of errors made by the judicial system in her being put under this conservatorship. Let's try and look at some of those errors. Firstly, she was not given the five days advance notice to conservatorship as is usually required. I tried to contact Judge Brenda Penny, who was in charge of this case, several times to find 
find out why. Wait while I transfer your call. Hi there, how are you? My name's Tom Pattinson. I'm calling from London in the UK. Um, I'm trying to get hold of um, ideally Judge Brenda Penny. The LA courts um, told me that the judicial canons in California prevent judges from commenting on pending cases and therefore could not accept my request for interviews. Next, her personal doctor was not used as a witness. None of the treating doctors at UCLA would sign off on conserving Brittany or referring, so they they get a hold of one of the hired guns, Dr. James Spar. And when I can tell you that he and another attorney, Dr. David Trader, were in the mix of like holding themselves out, kind of like marketing themselves as the conservatorship hired gun. Like if you needed an opinion or you needed an opinion to go in a certain direction, these are the two guys that you hire. I called Dr. Spar who's an experienced geriatric psychiatrist with 40 years' experience. I wouldn't call him a hired gun, but instead a medical professional at the top of his game. He wouldn't talk to me about Brittany's case, but explained how the system works. In California, at least in L.A. County, the first thing that happens is somebody files for conservatorship. The court sends out a probate investigator, which is not a doctor. It's usually a bachelor's level or master's level type person Mm -hmm. and they do kind of uh, evaluate the situation, talk to the client, you know, try to see what's going on. Mm -hmm. And then they make a recommendation back to the court, whether this, this thing makes any sense or not. So they first, they do that. The next thing they do is they appoint a probate volunteer panel attorney. Mm -hmm. These are attorneys who've agreed to do this sort of thing at a relatively low fee. They do it as a public service. I've been contacted by many private attorneys who had already been retained, who want me to do the evaluation. And the first thing I ask them is, who's the PVP attorney? And then they tell me. Then I say, my recommendation is talk to the PVP attorney and make sure that person agrees on me as the evaluating physician. Mm -hmm. Because if they don't, this poor lady is going to have to go through two evaluations. And that's cruel and unusual. Why would you do that? In the probate system, I usually get contacted by one or the other side, and sometimes they say, um, I'm contacting you on behalf of the court to do what they call a 730 evaluation, which is where you're not really retained by either side, but you're you're asked to do the evaluation by the court. I see. It's exactly the same evaluation. It doesn't matter who calls me. I do exactly the same thing. According to court records... Brittany underwent a 7.30 evaluation by Dr. Spar in February 2008, and he concluded that she was not able to attend the initial hearing. However, he said to me he will not confirm or deny whether he was involved in Brittany's case, and even if he was, he'd be bound by confidentiality. He continues to explain to me how the conservatorship works, and who needs one from a doctor's point of view. In California, you can have a person, a conservative person, if you are uh, unable to provide for your physical health needs, food, clothing, and shelter. Right. It's very straightforward. And then you can have a conservatorship of state apart if you are substantially unable to manage your finances and resist fraud and undue influence. Okay. So what does the evaluation of that entail? You know, well, it's, you know, tell me about, you know, 
where do you live and who, you know, how much is your rent? How much is your mortgage? What, you know, what doctor do you see? What medicines are you taking? Try to get an idea of how cognizant the individual is of the relevant circumstances, financial and personal. I do that. And then I also administer a standard battery of cognitive tests, which is, you know, my own, but it's designed to tap a whole bunch of different cognitive domains and it's relatively, you know, painless and easy to administer. Right. Then I formulate an opinion and, you know, it's a, it's a very subjective opinion because, you know, there's no clear criteria for that opinion. Uh, and I should also mention that it doesn't really matter because the court ultimately is going to hear my opinion, either you read my report or, you know, have me testify. So it comes down to expert opinions, but ultimately the court decides, you know, they don't always go with my opinion. Uh, and, usually, and usually the other side has another expert and they, you know, they present the other side. If it's a 730, there's usually, usually just one side. And then, it, you know, then a judge decides. Now, every time I'm asked if somebody qualifies for a conservatorship, they're really asking two questions. One is, do they qualify? And the other, which strictly speaking should not be my domain, but it but turns out to be in real life, do they need a conservator? They're yeah. very, very different questions. Because almost everybody I've ever interviewed who qualifies for a conservator has a system of care in place. You know, they have a daughter that's taking care of them or a son or a cousin or a financial advisor or... Uh, a spouse, you know, somebody is there and sort of functioning as a prosthetic brain mm. and making all the decisions and paying all the bills and making sure the person gets to the doctor and all that stuff. Generally speaking, most people don't need a conservatorship if they have a system that's in place. Right. Typically, the person filing for the conservatorship has to prove that the system that is in place isn't working. And most of the time, that's money. Right. And most of the time, somebody thinks that somebody is ripping off this person. You know, they're being stolen from or taken advantage of financially. Yeah. Then they have to prove that to get the conservatorship awarded. And, and you know, all the ones you read about with the celebrities, those almost always have to do with finances. And they almost always have to do with somebody being... Somebody believing that somebody else is being taken advantage of, manipulated, unduly influenced, defrauded, all that sort of stuff. And most of the people that get conservatorships, conservatorships appointed have some kind of cognitive deterioration. You know, they have a dementing condition mm. or they have brain damage, which produces a stable cognitive impairment, or they go through a period of delirium. Or sometimes you can have, you know, other mental illnesses that temporarily cloud your judgment. The former category tend to only get worse. The latter category often can get better. So just because you have a conservatorship awarded today doesn't always mean that you're going to need one next year. And you do have the opportunity to go back to court and have this whole situation reevaluated. So I don't know what the hell's going on with Britney Spears. I don't know why she still has a conservatorship. I have, I have no more idea than you do. Brittany had hired Adam Streisand, an experienced lawyer in celebrity wealth disputes. He was removed from his position 
and replaced with a court-appointed attorney named Sam Ingham III, who is still Britney's attorney today. She had reached out to an attorney named Adam Streisand, and she asked Adam to stop this. And Adam appeared in court, I believe it was February 4th, and based on recommendations by Dr. Spar, who was hired by James Spear, and Sam Ingham, who was also hired by James Spear, Judge Reva Gatz, Commissioner Gatz, kicked Adam Streisand out the room and said, we don't think Britney Spears has capacity to hire an attorney of her own. That was the fiasco. That was the day that justice died for Britney Spears. Now, is there any legal way that a judge, a court-appointed attorney, or even a doctor can determine that you are not able to pick your own attorney? Epic violation. When talking to Dr. Spahr, he genuinely seemed to have no idea about this. Usually the PVP, because they've, you know, they know me or they've heard of me or somebody's heard of me, mm-hmm. will say, okay. But not always. Sometimes the P- PVP has, you know, the psychiatrist they would rather use. But I've never run into a case where there was a PVP and the client wanted to hire another attorney and they weren't allowed to. Now, it's conceivable that somebody would say, uh, they're so far gone, they don't, they lack the capacity to retain an attorney. That could happen. Mm. But if that's true, generally speaking, then there's not a lot of contest about whether somebody needs a conservatorship. Going back to the Britney Spears case, with that case, apparently um, she tried to hire her own counsel in Adam Streisand, uh, but was eventually given a court-appointed counsel in Sam Ingham. Why would that have been? I have no idea. I know Adam Streisand very well. I have mm. no idea why they would do that. With something like that, though, would would there be, I mean, who would it be the judge, do you think, or would there be a medical pr- practitioner or professional who would advise whether someone could or couldn't um, retain their own counsel? Would that be a judge's it's decision? Always, it's always the judge, but they do rely on, uh, you know, expert opinions from people that they respect. Mm. I have given opinions many, many times. Sometimes the judge goes with my opinion, sometimes they don't. Sam Ingham was approved by not just the courts, but also by Jamie Spears, the very person Brittany was hoping her lawyer would fight against. The odds were stacked against her. I was struggling to understand why a court would allow this, until I spoke to civil rights attorney Thomas F. Coleman, who's the legal director of the Spectrum Institute. The um, benefit to the attorneys is that when they're appointed on a case, let's say that it's the case of an indigent, somebody without any money, Mm. then if the court appoints them, uh, they get their fees paid for by the county. And the more cases they get, the more money they make. And the judges will give them more of the indigent cases if they put in fewer hours and make the cases go away. Because, let me give you an example, where the presiding judge told these attorneys, when I go on the bench, this is Judge David Cowan. He sat in Britney Spears' case part of the time. Uh, He said, when I take the bench at 8.30, my docket has um, 85 cases. 
And then on my 930 docket, I've got like another 25 cases. We've got to get these cases moving along. This is day in and day out. How can a judge possibly pay attention to cases, have an evidentiary hearing, and so on and so forth? So the judge, the judges, their dockets are overloaded. That's not their fault. It's the fault of the system. They're not enough judges. They're not funded properly. So they have pressure on them to get rid of the cases. Therefore, they like a system that lets them put pressure on the attorneys to expedite the cases and get rid of them by settling them rather than filing motions or demanding hearings or asking for experts to be appointed or whatever. And the attorneys are happy to satisfy the judges so that they get more cases. But in addition to that, in addition to the indigent cases, the judges also have the power to appoint them in cases like Britney Spears' case Mm. or other cases where the person may have assets worth a million dollars or $10 million or whatever. So the judges, the attorneys know that if they don't please the judge, they might might not get appointed in the lucrative cases where they can make big, big money. And in those cases, the judges don't make them settle and make it go away. They let the attorneys milk it and keep it going and going and going. The way Tom explained it really made sense. Of course, the judges and the attorneys are working together. The judges want an easy life and to clear their dockets. And the attorneys know that they can blast through the cases that don't have money so that they can get in the good books of the judges to win the more lucrative cases. And they're supposed to be appointing them on a rotational basis. And I know they're not doing it because I researched the system. I looked at all of the fee payments uh, for three years out of the L.A. Superior Court and there are about 200 uh, attorneys on the panel for court appointments, and there are about 2,000 uh, cases uh, per year. So that means, on average, if it was done truly on a rotational basis, that each one would be getting about 10 cases, right? I found that there were some that were getting two to three cases, and others were getting 50 or 60 cases a year. Right. And the ones that were getting the most were the ones that were putting in the least hours in the indigent cases, because I went into the records and saw that. And finally, there are questions too about the type of conservatorship she was placed under. Brittany's was one usually reserved for those suffering from dementia rather than a temporary mental illness caused by a breakdown, drink or drugs. This type of permanent conservatorship means that the conservator has to agree to cancel it, rather than the mental illness form of conservatorship, which naturally expires, and the conservator has to prove that the conservatee needs to remain under it. I went to Las Vegas. I saw her. I mean, and she's singing, dancing. She is clearly not within the realm of what would be a probate conservatorship. And let me talk to you about that for a minute. So in California... There's actually a different court and a different set of rules for people that are experiencing what's called a mental mental illness. W&I code, Welfares and Institutions Code. And the Welfares and Institutions Code um, has provisions that will allow a conservator 
to impose medication and also to involuntarily hospitalize people that are deemed to be unable to, um, well, the criteria are three criteria, danger to self, danger to others, or gravely disabled. All right, so that courtroom in, in courthouse in Los Angeles is not even in the probate courthouse. They actually used to have rented a, like what looks like a little factory in a different corner of L.A. County. And um, the reason is because there was some very dangerous people. But this is where the severely mentally ill people are generally um, treated or uh, conserved. That's where they have the mental health hearings. So one of the key distinctions between mental health court and probate court has to do with the length of the conservatorships. Out of concern that people should not be uh, conserved that don't need to be for mental health illnesses, meaning that I may have a breakdown. Let's say I have a bipolar outbreak, but I'm on medication. I'm living my life, taking my medication. I'm medically compliant. Then by law, the court, meaning um, the county of Los Angeles, has the burden of proving to a judge that the conservatorship needs to continue. So if a letters of conservatorship are issued on January 1st, 2020, by law, they expire on December 31st, 2020, that year. It's a 12-month conservatorship. And it has to be renewed on an annual basis. And it is the burden of the proponent of the conservatorship to continue to prove to the court once again, you know, every anniversary, this person is a danger to herself, danger to others, or gravely disabled. In probate court, you do that does not exist. In probate court, if a conservatee wants to be out of conservatorship, he or she has the burden of filing a petition and asking the court to terminate the conservatorship. So assume, for argument, argument's sake, that Brittany had some type of mental health disorder that warranted a 72-hour hold, you know, hold in UCLA. It would have then been incumbent upon her, her doctors at UCLA, her treating doctors, to write a report recommending the mental health conservatorship to LA County, the public guardian's office. They would do the research and the LA County attorneys, county council, would have filed a petition in mental health court to conserve Britney Spears on the basis of danger to self, danger to others, grave disability by by virtue of mental illness. That did not happen. Uh, my theory is that she ended up in the wrong court with an attorney who has an economic incentive to never terminate the conservatorship. It's the ultimate conflict of interest. And that is why this has gone on for so long. There are fundamental problems within the probate court system in California that need to be addressed. It seemed to them that he was a bother and all they cared about was getting money. I mean, they were putting him in handcuffs. They were taking him outside. One, t one, some evidence that I got, they actually threw him outside 
to hose him down like he's an animal. This is Joseph Parizio talking about his mentally disabled brother, Michael, who was also placed under a conservatorship by what he calls abusive conservators. There was an appointed uh, attorney for my brother that was supposed to interview and talk to people in the case, which I didn't even know who that person was. Even when there was a court-appointed attorney that was supposed to protect my brother, he never spoke with me. He just went on what they, what the parents said, and that was it, and he said everything was fine. A week later, Michael died from an overdose of prescription drugs. The court-appointed attorney never interviewed Joseph, who complained that his brother's conservators were abusing him. The court-appointed attorney never took into account the photographic evidence of his handcuffed brother crying, naked, on the grass. The court attorney did whatever he needed to do just to get the money and make it an easy case for himself. People are not doing their jobs the correct way. The court system is not doing what they need to do to protect people. They're putting these court-appointed attorneys out there. They don't care. It's all about what easily can they can make money. There's nobody that's really, the victims can't really speak for themselves, and it's just easy for them. Michael's tragic death is an example of how the courts are stacking all the odds in the favour of the conservator and not the conservatee. Judges are eager to get cases cleared off their caseload and favour court-appointed attorneys who can make this happen quickly. But their eagerness to process cases quickly leads to oversight, corners being cut, and sadly, in the case of Michael Parizio, to unnecessary deaths. I've gone to politicians and talked to them about this. I have tried to go to the journalists. This is the this is what is so freaking bizarre to me is that I've tried for years to tell people we have a problem. People are routinely being left in the care and custody of their abusers. In exchange for processing the majority of cases quickly, these court-appointed councils are sometimes given the lucrative cases, where billable hours can stack up, earning huge paydays for the lawyers, and all at the expense of the most vulnerable, who are often voiceless. But what's happened to Bradford Lund and his stepmother, my client Sherry Lund, in Brad's cases before the Los Angeles Probate Court is just, it's unheard of. And it violates the purpose for which that probate court truly stands for. This is Laurieann Wrights, attorney for the stepmother of Bradford Lund, the 50-year-old grandson of Walt Disney, who has also fallen into the conservatorship trap. Another long and complex case that has been in the probate courts for years. Members of the Walt Disney family have been fighting over the Walt Disney estate worth hundreds of millions of dollars. The trustees of the Disney estate claim that Bradford doesn't have the maturity to manage his own financial affairs. Although an Arizona court said he was capable of handling his finances, the trustees of the Disney estate took the case to California, where Judge Cohen, who also presided over Britney's case, said he wasn't capable. At the core of the problem in the Lund Trust cases is a judge who is stopped acting as a neutral arbiter of the facts and instead has transformed himself into a party in the case, like he really is, advocating for one side of the case. This 
goes to the very heart of our American system of law. Judges are not supposed to take sides until there's a trial. Lund's lawyers are petitioning to have Judge Cohen removed from his office. But ultimately, the longer the client is deemed incapable of managing his or her own affairs, the longer the guardian, the attorneys, and others involved in the case will get paid. But it's not always those trying to get out of conservatorships. Sometimes it's people needing the protection of the courts to help them. But that protection is not always there. Eric Kramer had the perfect life. He was a professional quarterback in the NFL, playing for teams including the Chicago Bears and the San Diego Chargers. After injury caused his professional playing career to come to an end, he had a decade as a successful sportscaster. But then... And then in 2011, towards the end, uh, my son, my oldest son, Griffin, passed away uh, from a um, drug overdose. And uh, that kind of sent life into a tailspin for me there for a little while. Um, It was about three years later, I believe, <clears throat> well, about eight months after Griffin passed away, my mom passed away from uh, cancer. And then around the time she passed away, my dad uh, contracted cancer himself. And that was about a long three-year battle he had, which uh, ultimately resulted in me going into a battle of depression. Kind of came up out of nowhere. And um, so... Um, I find myself in a difficult spot there for a while. And ultimately, it led to a very fateful day in August of 2015, where I shot myself. I shot myself in the head. Eric's injuries were horrific. After waking from a coma, his mental capacity had been severely impaired and was described as childlike. So technically, Eric was deemed incapacitated while he was in the hospital from, um, from his attempt in his, on his life. This is Anna, Eric's friend, who's helped him through his journey. Shortly, like oh, two weeks after, uh, a doctor deemed him incapacitated. The family just wanted him, were concentrating on him recovering. They weren't looking into any type of conservatorship or anything like that nature because there was no reason for it at that point because we were taking care of him. Um, He was going through rehabilitation and it was, he can't remember it, but from us, for what we saw, it was excruciating for, at times, for us to witness who we saw from before to someone who is now, best way I can describe it, adolescent-like. So it, he was very adolescent. Like you say, hey, like when you speak with a child, let's go do this. What, what does a child do? They follow along with their parent, right? And do whatever the parent asks. That was the state of, of Eric's mentality at that time. Shortly after coming out of his coma, an ex-girlfriend turned up on the scene and started stealing from the incapacitated Eric. She stole tens of thousands of dollars. Although family members tried to intervene, Eric could simply not understand what was happening to him. Uh, Dr. Tomaszewski, who in the report, wrote that Eric was being stolen from, being taken advantage 
and could not comprehend the theft. So we're like, oh, that's how can he not comprehend it? Like he seems like he says all the right things, but he's not acting on any of it. For example, one credit card would stop working. He would just go to the next credit card. Although the police and friends and family could see what was happening, Eric couldn't comprehend it. And the police suggested putting Eric under a conservatorship to protect his finances from Courtney Barrett, who by now had tricked him into a marriage. A doctor approved this, and he was to be put under the conservatorship of his sister. But it wasn't as easy as they'd been led to believe. We were told by the attorneys it's just a formality. They never told us that Eric was going to get assigned an attorney and that that attorney, that the court assigned an attorney to Eric, that that attorney is going to fight the conservatorship. Not to be the conservator, to fight against Eric being conserved. Now, mind you, why would any attorney fight against someone being conserved if a doctor has deemed them incapacitated and there's theft occurring for six, seven months? And there's a police investigation. So this attorney that they assigned Eric from the court, his name was Michael Harrison, ignored, literally ignored the doctor's report, ignored, didn't even call the detective, refused to call the detective and refused to call the doctor saying it was irrelevant. And the only reason why we filed a petition was because of the theft that was occurring. Eric's court-appointed attorney decided to fight against putting Eric under a conservatorship, even though his family, his doctors, and even the detective all supported the idea, as did Eric himself. And it was necessary to stop the theft which was continuing day after day. Why would a court-appointed attorney oppose the expert opinion of doctors, police officers, and his own family? If you add up the amount of money that Courtney Baird stole... It was about $300,000. If you add up the amount of money in the probate court system that was legally stolen by lawyers, that was about $400,000. So when you ask me who's the bigger thief, I would say the conservatorship court system. Eric eventually got out of his conservatorship, and I'm pleased to say he's made nearly a full recovery. The fictitious charges of physical abuse that Courtney Barrett made against Eric were dropped. The wedding was annulled and Courtney Barrett was charged with theft. But the very process that was meant to protect him not only caused him and his family a huge amount of stress, it drained away his life savings. Tom Coleman gives the example of David Rector and his fiancée, Rosalind Kasparik, another couple whose life savings ended up in the hands of those meant to be helping them. David had been a producer with National Public Radio for a couple of decades in Washington, D.C. And he moved, he and Rosalind moved to San Diego. He then had a medical condition that happened to him that is called locked-in syndrome. Mm. So he could understand, but he became basically a quadriplegic. He couldn't communicate. Um, uh, And... So a problem arose that required Rosalind to seek a conservatorship so that she could be appointed his conservator. David had $90,000 in savings. Mm -hmm. Okay, so it's 
the realm of what you were talking about. Mm -hmm. So uh, Rosalind, you know, was caring for him. They were going to be married. They had been together for quite a while. The judge appointed a professional fiduciary, refused to appoint her. The professional fiduciary then had a lawyer. Between the lawyer and the professional fiduciary, they milked the estate for two or three years until there was no money left. Then the judge appointed Rosalind to be the conservator. Right. (laughs) So that's how warped this system is. The conservatorship system is meant to be protecting the vulnerable. But we can see in some cases the power is all in the hands of the conservator, even if they are abusive. And for those with finances that are in the need of help, they are trapped in a court system that milks them dry. Let's have a look at how exactly these court-appointed attorneys earn their money. Coleman explains to me that a court-appointed counsel, working on behalf of a conservatorship client, has to accept an hourly rate of $125 an hour, if it's an indigent case and the state is picking up the bill, or $250 an hour if it's coming out of the estate of the client. Brittany's court-appointed attorney, Sam Ingham, is earning $10,000 a week. That's 40 hours at $250 per hour per week, every week, for 13 years. Was that really the best deal she could get from the courts? If you had really put the word out to, let's say, even if you took it out of rotation and you said, okay, ask the next 10 attorneys on the list um, whether they would accept, they would represent Britney Spears for $150 or $175 an hour. I believe that you would have gotten several of them that said, yes, absolutely. So that's what one would do if you were truly trying to conserve the asset. But the judges, it's not coming out of the judge's pocket. They don't care about conserving Britney Spears' assets, and um, they're they're you know kind of paying off their good old boys network yeah. by giving lucrative cases to their favorites. Not only could Britney have likely found a cheaper attorney, but the obvious conflict here is why would Ingram want to get Britney out of a conservatorship that he's making ten thousand dollars a week from? And the final twist of the knife in the back? Not only are the fees from the client's court-appointed attorney coming out of the client's estate, so are the petitioner's fees too. The conservatee is also paying the legal fees to those trying to keep her in the conservatorship she is trying to escape from. Coleman gives the example of Teresa, who was also put under a conservatorship. The other thing that is screwed up is that... um, Let's say in in um, the case of Teresa, the one that I mentioned, mm-hmm. where they wouldn't accept the, her court-appointed attorney and appointed someone. So that attorney was getting paid $250 an hour out of Teresa's assets. She was in her mid-80s. Her case is still going on, by the way. Um, this was a few years ago. Uh, she was in her mid-80s. She had been an employee of the FBI for decades. 
Um, and she had a power of attorney for health care and she had a trust and all of that. Oh no, the court was going to ignore all of that. The court wouldn't accept her chosen attorney. The court appointed um, this other guy as an attorney. And um, the petitioner in the case was a stranger because she had no um, relatives. And so the court appointed a temporary conservator. So the temporary conservator had an attorney. Uh, the petitioner had an attorney and she had a court appointed attorney she didn't want. And then the court is authorized to pay the attorneys for all of the other parties out of the assets of the proposed conservatee. So now you've got three attorneys, but whereas her attorney could only charge $250 an hour, there is no limit as to what the attorney for Britney Spears' father can charge um, or what the attorney for the petitioner can charge. So they could charge $450 an hour. And so the poor person who's stuck in this litigation is paying more per hour for the attorney of their opponent than they are for their own attorney that they're stuck with. In Britney's case, court records from 2008 show that the legal team that put Britney into the conservatorship consisted of Gerald Cohen, who was earning $460 an hour, Jeffrey Wexler, $525 an hour, Vivian Torin, $315 an hour, Jonathan Park, $275 an hour, and Geraldine Weil, $495 an hour. In the first six months of 2008, Jamie Spears' legal team Bill Britney Spears $550,000 to put her into a conservatorship. But reform might well be underway, in no small part thanks to the spotlight that Britney's case has thrown onto the issues within California's probate court. Democratic Senator Ben Allen has introduced the SB 724 bill, which gives conservatees in California the right to obtain legal counsel of their preference. Currently, only attorneys on a court-approved list can represent conservatees. This means that a conservatee who wants to petition the court to change or end a conservatorship may only do so using attorneys that the court itself approves. And just this week, Republican representatives Jim Jordan and Matt Goetz sent a letter to Jerry Nadler, the chair of the House Judiciary Committee, demanding a hearing on conservatorships. Given the constitutional freedoms at stake and opaqueness of these arrangements, it is incumbent upon our committee to convene a hearing to examine whether Americans are trapped unjustly in conservatorships, it said. If the conservatorship process can rip the agency from a woman who is in the prime of her life and one of the most powerful pop stars in the world, just imagine what it can do to people who are less powerful and have less of a voice. In the next episode of Everyone Loves Britney, we look at who else stands to benefit from Britney being under a conservatorship. 
Not only the army of lawyers making millions from her estate, but her family, her financial advisors, and maybe even Brittany herself. Hey there, Hey, Pete. Um, I've had another email from um, Lou Taylor's legal team. A lot less friendly this time. I'll forward over. This show was written and narrated by myself, Tom Pattinson. Additional production and sound design was by Danny Knowles, and Peter McCormack was the executive producer. The soundtrack was written and performed by Chris Ketley. I'd like to thank Megan Radford, Leanne Simmons, and Kevin Wu from the Free Britney movement. I'd also like to thank Lisa McCarley and Tom Coleman for explaining the US legal system so well, and to Eric Kramer for talking with me so openly. Support for Defiance comes from Kraken, consistently rated the best and most secure Bitcoin exchange. Kraken puts the power in your hands to buy, sell and trade Bitcoin. With 24-7, 365 world-class customer support, you can trust Kraken to support you, whoever you are, wherever you are. Available at kraken.com or via the mobile app, which is on the Apple or Android app stores. Just search for Kraken Pro, which is K-R-A-K-E-N-P-R-O. Support also comes from BlockFi. With bank interest rates so low at the moment, there needs to be a new way of doing things, and BlockFi allows just that. With a BlockFi interest account, you can earn up to 8.6% APY on cryptocurrency deposits with interest paid monthly into your account. BlockFi has a loan account which allows you to borrow money at rates as low as 4.5%, so you can keep control of your Bitcoin whilst freeing up some cash. Not only that, BlockFi has a credit card coming out which allows you to earn up to 1.5% back in Bitcoin on every purchase. Accounts are quick to set up, flexible and secure. BlockFi really is the future of finance. To find out more, head to BlockFi.com, which is B-L-O-C-K-F-I.com.